Welcome to Thunder Thighs and Lightning. You're joining us for a NOPE episode where we highlight and commemorate women throughout history who have paved the way for us to make waves in the modern day hustle. Like having this comedy podcast. Each of the women that we feature said NOPE to the patriarchy or other oppressive systems in their lifetime, and we'd like to tell you their stories. Please note that these episodes are deemed explicit due to colorful language. Pants are not required. For today's Nope episode, I decided to do probably the female icon that I idolize the most. The one that's tattooed on your arm. I just saw you look at it. I was like staring at it. The one that I've permanently put in ink onto my body. Uh, Yes, her. Uh, Dorothy Parker. Ah. Uh, So Dorothy Parker, I'm just going to dive in. She's considered by many to be one of the best literary wits of the 20th century. And I found this quote um, that's credited to a source, Alamy, and I'll tell you about all my sources in a second. But the quote is, Parker will be remembered as the tipsy distiller of sentiments that defined the roaring 20s, but her independent spirit defines her as an icon. Love that. Love it. So my sources for this are um, YouTube videos from I-24 News in English that featured correspondent Emily Francis, uh, and then a video of Kevin Fitzpatrick of the Dorothy Parker Society, Uh which I learned all about. I geeked out so hard on this one. Oh, I bet this is a jam. (laughs) Um, And then a documentary called The 10-Year Lunch, Wits and Legends of the the Algonquin Roundtable by Aviva Slesson from 1987, Dorothy Parker Society, which is at dorothyparker.com, an NPR interview with Marion Mead, um, the author of What Fresh Hell Is This?, And then a BBC story by Hefziba Anderson that's called uh, Dorothy Parker's Stunning Wit and Tragic Life. And I had 1,900 other sources that I could have looked at, but this is kind of, it was already a lot. So Dorothy Rothschild was born August 22nd, 1893. That was yesterday. No, it's today. Oh, today. Oh, my gosh. I want to take a second to just give a shout out. Uh We're recording this on Dorothy Parker's birthday, which is completely nerdy and makes me this really happy. This is so awesome. Yeah. She was born in West End, New Jersey to a Jewish coat maker and a Protestant mother. Her mother died when she was either four or five years old. There were some conflicting reports, but when she was really young, her father quickly remarried to an older woman that Dorothy didn't get along with. And that woman died four years later when Dorothy was nine. So by the time she was nine, her mom and her stepmom had oh. died. Did she kill her stepmom? I don't, I don't know. Okay. I That's a rabbit hole. Should I, I go down it? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Follow-up episode. Uh, she and her father, her father totally adored her. Uh, so when her stepmom died, they had just adopted a shitload of dogs. And then I want to do a side note because you and I both fucking love dogs so much. Um, across her life, she just had a ton of dogs and they have the best names ever. So I need to tell you about all their names. Yes. <laughs> she had Mutts, one named Amy, one named Scrambles. Boston Terriers named Bunk, Nogi, Rags, and Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. Poodles named Say Too, Cliche, Limey, Misty, Poupe, and Troy. Oh my God. Fucking poodle named Troy. Oh my God. Um, Dachshunds named Fraulein and Robinson. A boxer named Flick. A Dalmatian named Jack. And then she had other assorted terriers that were named Cora, Daisy, Timothy, and Wolf. So can I tell you, this is a super reach. But today is Basil's half birthday. (laughs) She's six months old today. Oh, my God. Which I'm a huge fan of celebrating half birthdays. I feel like it was meant to be that it's Dorothy Parker's birthday. I love it. 
And she loves dogs so much. And she would have had a Brains Mountain Dog named. really cool one. Mm, I love it so much. Sorry, side note. It's not a reach. So she was raised on the Upper Upper West Side of New York City in an apartment with her father. Um, At the time that she was growing up, there were over 80 theaters just in her neighborhood. And then a ton of underground, like, vaudevillian theaters that were existing. And so she was just, like, absorbing all this culture and really enthralled by it. Um, she went to a Catholic school because at that time, like the upper class Jews in that neighborhood sent their kids to a Catholic school because it was like a quote unquote better education. Um, she was a total class clown, didn't like school at all. And the nuns didn't like her. So she dropped out at the age of 14. And then that was like formally when she quit education. Uh, later in her life, she described herself as a plain disagreeable child with stringy hair and a yen to write poetry. In 1911, her uncle, her father's brother, died on the Titanic. Oh, my God. Yeah, and her dad took it so horribly that he passed away a year later, just, like, from heartbreak. So then in 1911, let's see, she would have been 18 years old. That was, um, you know, when her last parent died. Uh, When her father, when when her father was alive, he wasn't allowed to join any of the prominent men's clubs in New York City because he was Jewish. Which later down the road, or later in this episode, I'll talk about the Algonquin Roundtable. Um, but so later, when when she got to join that as like a Jewish author, it meant that much more to her because her dad couldn't join all of these social clubs or go to the nice hotels. Oh. He or couldn't you know fraternize like fraternize fraternize <laughs> not fraternize <laughs> not rubbing his genitals on things. <laughs> He couldn't fraternize he with like the upper elite, even though he was part of that. That's so sad. Um, so in 1917, she married a stockbroker named Edwin Pond Parker II, who I'm sure was boring as shit. Uh, he was an alcoholic and a morphine addict. So maybe not. <laughs> maybe he like, like maybe he liked to party. <laughs> um, Dorothy was described across her lifetime as "quote unquote" not having a single domestic skill. <laughs> oh my so god! That's what kind of wife she was. I love her in the you know 1910s. The two separated in 1922, and then they finally divorced in 1928. Five years later, she married screenwriter Alan Campbell. The two of them divorced in 1947, then remarried three years later, and then they were together until 1963 when he died from suicide by drug overdose. But Uh, Dorothy insisted that it was accidental. At that time, um, at the age of 70, Dorothy briefly lived with her really good friend, Gloria Vanderbilt, in like the Vanderbilt estate. And in this research, I found out that Gloria Vanderbilt is Anderson Cooper's mom. Oh my God, that's right. Oh my God. I didn't know that. Yes. I I don't, that has nothing to do with the story, but I was so excited when I found that out. So much. Yeah. Um, there's a story of a neighbor coming by to ask Dorothy if she needed anything after Alan had passed away. And she replied, yeah, get me a new husband. (laughs) And this neighbor was just like completely aghast and she berated her like how inappropriate that was. So Dorothy said, fine, run down to the sandwich shop at the corner and order me a ham and cheese on rye. Tell him to hold the mayo. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just fucking love her. Is this describing my marriage? (laughs) (laughs) Um, A friend later described her as having the romantic responsibility of a hoodlum. (laughs) And she's described across like all of the articles and everything that I saw as just having these 
deep longing desires for men who are like emotionally unavailable or married or so she was her writing and and she was plagued by a lot of like lust and love for people that was you know it was not requited kind of a lot across her lifetime which all authors are um so normally i I kind of like to do these note episodes chronologically, but I'm going to talk about the end of her life right now because it's notable, but I definitely want to end this episode talking about her achievements and her activism and her accomplishments, not talking about how she died, if that's fine. Yep. <laughs> uh, over her lifetime, Dorothy was known to have attempted suicide at least five times, um, oh, one, wow. one very early in life after she had an abortion. Um, in the documentary I watched, one of her friends quoted her has having said after the abortion serves me right for putting all my eggs in one bastard. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's such a good quote. I know. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't even imagine being at the table with all of these just brilliant people. Anyways, uh, she attempted psychotherapy. That was like what everyone was trying at the time. And it just was not useful for her. Um, later in life, she was known to drink to excess just to do all like, drink to excess just due to all of the pain and heartache and loss that she had suffered. Um, and so Dorothy Parker actually ended up dying on June 7th, 1967 at the age of 73 from a heart attack. And she was found in her hotel room on the Upper East Side where she lived alone with her dog. Oh. Kind of sad, but also yeah. she still had a dog. She was not survived by any family because she was not, you know, she was a widower and uh, she didn't have any kids. I am really relieved though, because in the beginning of you talking about this, I was thinking that she had like a short life. And so I'm like, actually like 73, yeah, 73. still like young that I think in my eyes. Um, but that, I mean, that's, that's a really, healthy, well, and she was born in 1893. Yeah. So, I mean, the life expectancy in 1893 was not now. 73. So yeah. she came across, you know, a huge span of things but and she murdered her stepmom so i mean like no, i'm just kidding i'm <laughs> kidding that's my own that's conjecture but we <laughs> want to believe it and anyways uh we'll bring it back to what a badass she was right after this message from our sponsor okay we're back and now i just want to get on to what dorothy is best known for her wit and her talent with the written word that's like really who she was um, in her time, which was, you know, the early 1900s through the 20, the roaring 20s and all of that, uh, she was known as the most quoted woman in New York. Oh, wow. Which is like hashtag dream yeah. for me. <laughs> um, so I, obviously I could do a whole episode telling you about her quotes, um, but that would probably bore you to death because it would just be me reading uh, Google. So <laughs> <laughs> I recommend that everyone actually Google some of her quotes. Um, I did for my bachelorette party last year, I printed out a bunch of her quotes and gave them to people, um, like at, like the different girls that were there, oh, just things that. that meant something, you know, to me that sort of connected with them. Um, so here's a couple of my favorite, what the fresh hell is this? <laughs> that's like the name of one of the um, books that's written about her as well, which I think that's not really a quote, just like a statement, but I feel like people still say what the fresh hell is this? Yeah. Um, and then the first thing I do in the morning is brush my teeth and sharpen my tongue. I love that. Fucking love that one so much. And then this one I hadn't known, but I came across heterosexuality is not normal. It's just common. Oh, right. Wow. In her time. Yeah. That's um, huge. So some more, uh, when asked one time at the Algonquin round table, which I still have yet to introduce to you, but I promise I will. Uh, she was asked to incorporate the word horticulture in a quote. And she famously said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. 
Oh my god. Awesome. That- <laughs> like I feel like I need that just like on a comforter on oh my, my bed god, or something. That is actually so awesome. Um one time when she was asked if she had enjoyed herself at a recent party, she said, "Enjoy myself. One more drink and I'd have been under the host." <laughs> Amazing. And then this, I really like this story too. Later in life, there's more to this story, but she was arriving at this like really fancy soiree at the same time as this woman who she was feuding with. And the woman opened the door and said, age before beauty to let Dorothy go through. So Dorothy walked through and said, pearls before swine. Oh my God. Fucking love her so much. Um, So in 1915, at the age of 22, she submitted her first poem to Vanity Fair and it was published Um, She worked to become a major writer at Vanity Fair, and then she also went on to write for Vogue, Life Magazine, and then eventually The New Yorker. Wow. Um, The first editor, I found this to be really awesome, just like a fun fact. The the Vogue Magazine was um, launched, was first published in 1892, so the year before Dorothy was even born. And the first editor of Vogue was a woman in the fucking 1800s. Oh, my God. Uh, Her name was Edna Woolman Chase. I don't know much about her. Um, but she was the editor for 37 years. To this day, she holds the record for working for being editor in chief the longest. That's so cool. Yeah, and that's who Dorothy's boss boss was when she worked there. So what a cool role model to have this like high powered woman, run, you know, running this new magazine, and then she's your boss. Um, in 1990, or sorry, 90. In 1919, at the age of 26, Dorothy became one of the founding members of the Algonquin Roundtable that I won't shut up about. (laughs) What is this roundtable? So I'll tell you. uh, The Algonquin Roundtable is a group of New York City writers, critters. I wish there were critters. They're like little raccoons. There There probably were. There might have been. Writers, critics, actors, and wits. They initially gathered as a practical joke, um, just kind of because they were sarcastic and irreverent. And I saw a quote somewhere that said, what started as a two hour hoax turned into a 10 year lunch. And so that's why that documentary is called the 10 year lunch. Um, They called themselves the vicious circle and they met for lunch almost every day at the Algonquin hotel in New York city for nearly 10 years. Wow. So some of the writers that were there um, and you might've heard of these people or not, I recommend looking them up if you have not. Uh, Robert Benchley, George S. Kaufman, Edna Ferber, Alexandra Wolcott, and Harpo Marx was even a member of the Algonquin Roundtable just because, you know, he was super witty and of that genre. Several war journalists that were coming back from World War One also joined. So just this really deep, rich group of people who were kind of the elite and didn't have anything else to do. They could just go to lunch and and I'm kind of like super um, impressed by this because uh, you and me and Audrey have attempted to do a ladies who lunch lunch like <laughs> before COVID. Granted, we were in a pandemic, but um, I just have to point out that they did lunch like every day and like we can barely meet like once every six months. I know. I think that also <laughs> means that they didn't have a lot else going on. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them were writers and authors and stuff. So their jobs. Side hustle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But so I think that a lot of what they were doing was fuel for that. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense if writing is your career to get together with witty people who challenge you and get your creative juices flowing. But still, I mean, how can I go to lunch every day for several hours and drink and smoke at a really fancy hotel for 10 years? That's that's 
Very impressive. Seriously, I need that answer right now. <laughs> um, later in life, Dorothy moved to Los Angeles um, after she had married Alan Campbell, who was the screenwriter. And she ch- kind of transitioned away from writing poetry and short stories and started writing Hollywood screenplays. She was a screenwriter for um, MGM and Technicolor. And then something so awesome that I learned, which kind of made me upset that I got her inked on my body and didn't know this, <laughs> but is that she actually won an Academy Award for writing A Star is Born. Oh my God. Which originally starred Janet Gaynor and Frederick March and then was remade star- starring Judy Garland. And then was obviously recently remade with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper and won a bunch of awards. Well, now I feel super ignorant because I didn't even know that. It I was, didn't know I that either. Like, I was like, Lady Gaga definitely wrote this. Like, <laughs> you know, like, God, she's brilliant. Like she Lady is. Gaga and Dorothy Parker would have gotten along. Oh, 100%. I would love to be at a lunch with them. Oh, ladies who lunch. And Bradley Cooper, just so we could stare at him. But he's just like across the road. No, he's the maitre d'. Yes, that'd be lovely. Okay, well, this is a different podcast episode called Wet Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) No, my wet dream is my cry pet. Oh, that's right. Cricket, cricket. She was eventually uh, fired from Vanity Fair, Dorothy, because she wrote this really scathing review of someone very powerful in Hollywood. So her two best friends at the time, who were Robert Benjley and Sherwood Anderson, um, also both writers at Vanity Fair, they just quit. They were like, fuck this place. And they all three started working for Life Magazine and writing for them. Wow. Uh, Dorothy had a column in Life Magazine called Hymns of Hate. (laughs) So that tells you a lot about her. Um, She and several other of the Algonquin writers went on to work for The New Yorker. But again, they were eventually let go just to like, due to their irreverence. Uh, Dorothy spent most of her life fighting for civil rights through her literary work. And she used her like position of privilege and being in the elite class to stand up and give voices for those who were being silenced. Uh, she was socially conscious at a young age, um, especially for the late 1800s, early 1900s. Which is like the beginning of the women's suffrage movement, uh-huh. which is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the 1920s, she was writing regularly about black actors and Jewish actors and just bringing their stories to the masses. And in the 1930s, I read that she actually visited Spain and she just w- witnessed the atrocities of the Spanish Civil War, um, came home, and then she actually collaborated with Ernest Hemingway to um, tell that story. Uh. An interesting thing, now that I just mentioned Hemingway, I read a lot about how later in life, um, Dorothy tried to like downplay her wit and her attachment to certain quotes and was trying to say that other women who were involved in the Algonquin Roundtable said those. I think she was just like depressed and not trying to be in the, you know, take spotlight or anything. Mental illness is a motherfucker. But um, she noted that the Algonquin Roundtable at some point, she was like, that wasn't even that great. Hemingway wasn't even there. F. Scott Fitzgerald wasn't even there. If those writers didn't show up, like, who the fuck were we? That's a paraphrase. That's pretty (laughs) rad, though. Yeah. Um, At the age of 40, she had what she called her Jewish awakening. And in 1956, she proclaimed in writing, I'm a feminist in a major publication. And it's interesting that you brought up suffrage because everything I saw was that, like, her, what she called her feminism was really criticized by the suffragettes the original wave of them they no were like way. she writes as a female not as a feminist she's super into men and she's super into fashion um, and that's not what feminism is about 
Um, but by the second wave of feminism, they just saw her humor as like the social protest to the patriarchy. That's so they really awesome. saw like she felt like she was using her place to really exemplify feminism. Um, by the time the civil rights movement started going, she had get, started getting momentum. She had been immersed in social justice and activism issues for a long time. Uh, during the McCarthy era, she was blacklisted from rec from writing for certain publications. She had a huge FBI file, and Herbert Hoover even had her followed by the FBI. Oh, my gosh. Because of what she was um, speaking out against. And, oh, she was also a Lucy Stoner. Um, so Lucy Stone was this orator and activist who... I thought you meant she was a loose, like, stoner. Like, she wasn't, like, stoned all the time, but it was, like, loosely. I, oh, I had never heard of I this. I thought you meant, like, loosely. Like, she was, like, uh, loosely stoned. I'll dabble in some She probably memes. was loosely stoned a lot probably. of the time. It, dude, okay. So, okay. Explain, Anyways, I, no, I, yeah. So, Lu Lucy Stone, <laughs> which is an amazing name now that you bring that up. I'm sorry. No, she started this league of, during the, femini the feminist movement, she started this league of uh, women who were just, like, fighting to fighting for their rights and fighting for individuality and fighting for their power. Um, one of the things that they really encourage, they not, they didn't require, but they encouraged women to uh, not take their husband's last names as oh. a way to like maintain their identity. And Dorothy had already taken her first husband's last name years earlier, but, um, but yeah, so Lucy Stoner is probably going to be on a Nope oh, episode. For sure. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yes. Um, she paid money out of her own pocket for Jewish immigrant kids to attend good schools and for their families to thrive in her neighborhood. Um, she, there's a story and I didn't dig too deep into it about her witnessing the execution of two men who she believed to be innocent of crimes that they were convicted of. And so at that time she started shifting more towards activism writing and less like wit and humor and poetry. And that get, brings me to my fucking nope for Dorothy. Uh, I have in my notes, she wrote about the human condition. She uh, she used her humor as a form of rebellion. She used she really used her place in Hollywood and as a mainstream journalist. So like this place of privilege to be a voice for people who didn't have one and to not stand on the backs of others, but to lift them up. Right. Like to bring. And that's shouldn't have to be a nope, but it was. Yeah. It still fucking is. Yeah. Using your position of power, your position of whiteness or your position of, you know, elite wealth or whatever it is to really lift people up. I mean, fuck. Look around powerful us. powerful with it. What's going on right now? Yeah. Like the social uprising that's going on now, instead of being like, not going to go too deep into it, but instead of being like people in our current administration and using their positions of wealth and power and eliteness and privilege and whiteness to... Uh, be a platform for others to have a voice. Uh, we're putting those people in fucking cages. I mean, again, I'm not going to go too far into that. I think you guys know what I mean. But I wrote down if she could do it. What I'm dropping. You guys get it. If she could do it, I said. Oh, I wrote down. If she could do it 100 fucking years ago, I think our privileged, lazy asses can do something now. Yeah. Um, this this was all new to me, and I fucking love it. Um, when Dorothy passed away, she bequeathed her entire estate to Martin Luther King Jr. No way. Yeah. And then, sadly, he was assassinated under a year later. So she died in 1967, and oh. he was assassinated in April of 1968. So his family bequeathed her entire estate to the NAACP. So all royalties from her work continue to benefit the NAACP. Wow. Uh, yeah, like to this day. 
And so her ash, she was cremated and she didn't give any specifics on what to do with her ashes. So they actually, this is kind of melancholy, but also makes sense for who Dorothy was. The ashes just sat in a lawyer's drawer in his office for like 15 years. Oh Cause God. like she didn't say what to do with them. So um, I think this journalist was writing about her or something and found out the ashes were in the drawer and so donated them to the NAACP headquarters in Baltimore. And there's a memorial garden now and her epitaph, which she requested before she died was excuse my dust. Oh my God. Yeah. XOXO Dorothy. Um, I wanted to just add a couple things at the end here. One of the fellow members of the Algonquin Roundtable described Dorothy, and I thought it was just like poetic and breathtaking, and I would want someone to write about me this way. So I want to share that. That's cool. Perfect. Uh, her figure was slight. Her eyes with their tranquil and intensely thoughtful expression, a furious mixture of hazel and green. She was reticent, self-effacing, and preternaturally shy. She wore horn-rimmed eyeglasses, which she removed quickly if anyone spoke to her. Cool, right? I'd love that. I don't think anyone would call me preternaturally shy. <laughs> and then I just wanted to end by saying, uh, Dorothy, she was, she's been on a United States postal stamp, and she has lots of tributes and things named after her, but she has a, actually has a gin named after her at a Brooklyn distillery, which I think is really fucking cool because she's like, was around in the 20s. I love this. And now I want to drink it all the time. Yeah. There's a disco named after her in Brazil. I don't know why, but well, let's fucking go. We need to go. On our nope tour. Oh, 100%. <laughs> let, me go, let me go get into storage and get my velvet pants out. <laughs> Perfect. I hope you really have velvet pants. I do. Um, and then pretty soon an, apart an apartment building called Parker West is going to be constructed at the site of her demolished childhood home. In the Upper West Side. Oh, I love that. Um, in 1987, Prince wrote and performed a song called The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, which I did not know. It was like on the Sign of, Sign of the Times album. Um, I listened to it. It's not great, but it's fucking Prince. <laughs> it's so it band. doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big deal. And then as of today, as of this recording, um, this tattoo that we started off talking about, this original artwork by my artist, um, Ethan Radcliffe of Dorothy Parker, has been officially added to the Dorothy Parker Society online tattoo gallery. No way! <laughs> I mean, because I mailed it in. This or emailed a, it in. Hey, you know what? It's getting recognition. I know. I'm really and excited about it. it's a beautiful it. tattoo. Anyways, that's Dorothy Parker. Learn more about her. She's a fucking badass. And she noped real hard. So I don't know if you remember this, but in the beginning of our friendship that has now blossomed into this glorious, unhealthy relationship we have with each other, <laughs> podcast, um, podcast, you gifted me with one of your cards from her. And it's one of my favorite quotes. And I have it in my office, my home office. And I look at it every day and it says, don't look at me with that tone of voice. Oh, I love her so much.